Hey there, welcome to See It or Shove It. I'm your host, Greg, and I'm here again this week to give you my thoughts on the latest movies playing in theaters and streaming on your TV. Also this week, I share the latest arrivals on streaming services and now streaming, and we find out which movie you voted for for this week's Be Kind Rewind. Let's get started. For our featured movies this week, Tom Cruise goes globetrotting in Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. Four women go on a journey of healing in The Miracle Club. A sports league gets exposed in Black Ice. And young thespians attend theater camp. First up, a missing key sets off an international crisis that only Ethan Hunt can solve. This is Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1. In the latest addition to the Mission Impossible franchise, Academy Award nominee Tom Cruise returns as Ethan Hunt, who is given a new mission from former IMF director Eugene Kittredge, played by Henry Zerny. He is told there is a rogue AI out there that is now a target for superpowers around the world. The only way for this AI to be controlled is by a key that has been split into two halves. One half is currently out there and is about to be sold to the highest bidder on the black market. So, Hunt must assemble his team, which includes actors Ving Rhames and Simon Pegg, returning as Luther and Benji, and together they will do everything they can to intercept the key before it gets into the wrong hands. Hunt has just returned from the desert where he has helped stage the death of Ilsa Faust, played by Rebecca Ferguson, and he now, along with his team, set up shop in a Dubai airport where he discovers the chase for the key involves more than he planned on, including Gabriel, played by Isai Morales, a corrupt mercenary who has previous ties to Ethan. He wants the key to have the power to control the AI. Also complicating matters is a pickpocket named Grace, played by Haley Atwell, who is interested in selling the key as a money-making opportunity, and instead gets wrapped up in the middle of all this. Also joining the search for the key is arms dealer White Widow, played by Oscar-nominated actress Vanessa Kirby. So, where is this key, and can Ethan and his team retrieve it in time before it gets into the wrong hands? When I saw the trailer for this, I thought it would be a see-it, and I give this film a... See-it! This is the film I've been waiting for all summer, and it is so much fun. My expectations were met. I actually saw it twice last week to see how it held up on a second viewing, and the second time was just as enjoyable. The action scenes were plentiful from beginning to end, and I really enjoyed how the story moved right along from one set piece to another, to another, to another. You really can't go wrong with the Mission Impossible films. Tom Cruise is excellent, as always, in the role of Ethan Hunt, and the supporting players are all very good as well, especially Atwell, who is new to the franchise and has a character that gives Ethan Hunt a run for his money. The film did take a little bit of a dip in the middle, but that didn't last for long as the next set piece came right along to give it a boost of adrenaline. At nearly three hours long, this film doesn't feel anywhere near that long. At all. 
the thing about the Mission Impossible movies that I am just truly amazed by is how they seem to get better and better and better with each one. How many franchises can you say are able to do that? This is truly a summer blockbuster that needs to be seen in theaters on the big screen. Now, this is part one of a two-part story, so it does leave things up in the air a little, even though it does wrap up nicely in the end. Part two is supposed to be coming out next year, but I'm wondering if these writers and actor strikes are going to prevent that from happening. I hope not, but whenever the next part comes out, I'll be right there watching it. Next, a woman gets an unwelcome homecoming after the death of her mother before going on a journey of healing. This is the Miracle Club. What do you want to be going to Lourdes for anyway? I always wanted to go there. If you go out that door, don't even bother coming back. Miracles happen there. You could speak. How are you, Chrissy? My mother is dead. I'm in a place I swore I would never come back to. Hi. I wouldn't have recognized you. Forty years. What is that to you? I'd say, yeah, mixed. Yes, but it's great to have her back. Marvelous. Bloody marvelous. In 1967 Ireland, two lifelong friends named Lily and Eileen, played by Oscar winners Maggie Smith and Kathy Bates, are mourning the loss of a dear friend. As part of a small community, the two, along with a much younger friend named Dolly, played by Agnes O'Casey, sign up for a talent contest at the church, hoping to win a trip to Lourdes, which is in France. They want a chance to bathe in the sacred water thought to bring miracles. Each of them needs it, too. Lily is ravaged with grief over the death of her son Declan, who drowned many years prior. Eileen has found a lump in her breast and is scared it may be cancerous. And Dolly wants to bring her son, who, for one reason or another, refuses to speak. Returning to town is Chrissy, daughter of the aforementioned dead woman. Played by Oscar nominee Laura Linney, Chrissy has been gone for decades, and her return is most unwelcomed by Lily and Eileen, who hold a grudge for reasons that are revealed later in the story. Dolly, on the other hand, has no history with her and warms up to her rather quickly. One thing leads to another, and eventually the four of them are on the bus heading to Lourdes on a journey that hopefully brings each of them peace. Does it work? I give this film a... Mild shove it. I wanted to like this a lot more than I did. The cast is as strong as they come. Maggie Smith, Kathy Bates, and Laura Linney are treasures, and they elevate this movie to a level that I feel it doesn't deserve. If it weren't for their performances, I have a feeling that this just would have been buried somewhere on a streaming service where people would just randomly come across it. The story is kind of routine, you know what's going to happen, it's not very well written, and the drama is forced and cliched. There were moments that were hilarious, but again, a lot of those moments came as a result of the delivery of the lines from the phenomenal actresses. But not for one second did I not know where this was heading. The scenery was fantastic and beautiful shots of Ireland and France, but that doesn't compensate for the lack of a story. There is a specific audience for this movie, and I'm not it. It's the kind of movie that my mother would like, and that's not necessarily a compliment. You can go ahead and skip this one unless you really love these actresses, and then it might be worth watching, but I still don't think you'll think it's very good. Next, throughout history, racism in sports has been no secret, but the depths at which it occurs is, until now. This is Black Ice. I'm skating down the ice. I see an object fly by me. I'm like, kind of, you know, what is that? I take a glance, I'm like, it's a banana. 
whatever happens, we got to put our head down and shut our mouth. This is what's wrong with our game. Akeem Alou claims that Flames head coach Bill Peters directed racist language at him. Hard stuff to talk about. Racism. It's an ingrained in the game. I had to keep my mouth shut and just move forward. It's a cultural problem within the sport of hockey that goes unchecked. Throughout history, the NHL has not been known as a league that screams diversity. In this riveting documentary, you'll understand why. Detailing the experiences of several Canadian hockey players, Black Ice recounts the long history behind black athletes in a predominantly white sport. Tracing its roots back to the League of Black Hockey Players in the late 1800s, the film shows how influential that Black Hockey League was in the current game, from creating the slap shot to how goalies work their position. Never once were any of these players compensated, rewarded, acknowledged, or recruited for positions within the NHL. Cut to modern day, and the filmmakers showcase the experiences of several players, including Akima Lu who recounts how a coach berated him in front of a team for playing rap music in the locker room, a tirade that included repeated use of the N-word, to women's all-star Soroya Tinker, who details the challenges she faced as she was deemed uncoachable simply because of the color of her skin. Other featured athletes include Wayne Simmons, Matt Dumba, and Anthony Duclair, among others who retell their experience of racism during their time playing, which includes being called monkeys, having spectators as well as fellow players imitating peeling bananas to their faces, having gorilla sounds made toward them from parents while playing in youth leagues, having equipment managers delivering their equipment in blackface, as well as online bullying, among many other things. I give this film a... See it. This movie was so maddening to watch, but it is excellent. What these athletes have had to go through is, well, I would normally say it's unbelievable, but quite frankly, in today's society, it's very believable, and it's shameful. What's more shameful is the lack of seriousness their allegations are met with from hockey officials from the NHL. To see young teenage boys and girls being tormented by parents, all because of the color of their skin, and the fact that these kids have the nerve, the nerve, to play hockey in Canada is mind-boggling. The director does an excellent job in curating the stories of the athletes, while also weaving in the history of black hockey players in Canada. He juxtaposes it with how these players are taking their experiences and trying to create a less hostile environment for the youth of today. It really is an eye-opening documentary, and if it sounds like something that would interest you, you won't regret it. It'll probably piss you the hell off, but you won't regret watching it. Finally, the staff at a summer camp faces an uphill battle when their leader suffers a health crisis. This is Theater Camp. Welcome, auditioners. You guys are so talented, so unbelievable. This will break you. This will fully destroy you. Congratulations on being the most talented kids at camp. Starfish, starfish, jiggle like a jackal, jiggle like a jackal. These are the things we can do with masks. These people are really weird. That's a good song choice, right? I do believe her as a French prostitute. Famous. Oh, I'm sorry, sex worker. Thank you. Filmed in mockumentary style, Theater Camp stars Ben Platt, Molly Gordon, Noah Galvin, and Jimmy Tatro as adults at a summer camp for aspiring thespians. 
When the camp director, Joan, played by the hilarious Amy Sedaris in a role that was way too short for my taste, is suddenly hospitalized in a coma after suffering a seizure while attending a high school production of Bye Bye Birdie, the camp is left without a director. Camp Adirondacks is now under the guidance of Joan's completely incompetent and disinterested son, Troy, played by Tatro. Troy is a fish out of water, which is made clear when he tries to get the camper's attention, to no avail, until counselor Amos, played by Platt, gets their attention with a show tune. Amos is an icon at camp, along with his partner in crime, Rebecca Diane, played by Gordon. Each year, they organize the classes and write their own original musical as a season-ending show. Galvin's character, Glenn, is a tech wizard who has run ragged all summer trying to put out fires as each show gets off the ground. With a competing theater camp nearby, one which wants to swoop in and buy Adirondacks for the massive land it owns, the counselors and campers must put on a hell of a show to save the camp. Will they be able to do it? I give this film a... Mild See It. Like the Miracle Club earlier in this podcast, theater camp is made for a very specific audience. Except instead of old lady Hallmark movie-loving audiences, this one caters to those familiar with theater people. Fortunately, that's me! I really enjoyed this. I thought it was funny, engaging, charming, and witty. It, and it's actually the first time in a long time that Ben Platt didn't irritate the hell out of me, so I give it credit for that. Yes, the mockumentary style has, in my opinion, been overused, and I think it's time to kind of let it go. But the story worked for me. There were moments of hilarity that I think are more likely to be appreciated by people who have a background in theater or have experienced some kind of theater education in their lives. For a while in college, I was a drama minor, so I took several classes in the theater department, and there were many people up on that screen that seemed very familiar to me. So, if this sounds like something you could enjoy and appreciate, then you'll probably end up liking it. I went with my sister, and she didn't care too much for it. So again... My mild see-it rating is mostly because it's for a very specific audience, and if you're not part of that audience, you're probably not going to like it. But I did. So that's it for this week's featured films. To recap, Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is in theaters now and is a see-it, and is my pick of the week. The Miracle Club is in select theaters now and is a mild shove-it. Black Ice is in select AMC theaters now and is a see-it, and if it were in other chains, I would have made that my pick of the week. But if it's playing around you, go see it. It is excellent. And Theater Camp is in select theaters now and expands wide in the next two weeks and is a mild see it. Now it's time for my segment where I share where you can find some of the films released within the last few months that are now available for home viewing. This is now streaming. A dark and engaging take on the life of Emily Bronte can be found in the film Emily, starring Emma Mackey and Oliver Jackson Cohen. It is now streaming on Paramount+, and to hear my full review, you can listen to episode 63. And the fun action film Plane, starring Gerard Butler and Mike Coulter, was a surprisingly good and effective thriller. Much better than it had any right to be. But it was very fun. It is now streaming on Stars, and to hear my full review, you can listen to episode 54. 
finally this week it's time to look back at films from the past. This is Be Kind, Rewind. Continuing on my series where I take the 52-week movie challenge, this week's topic was a movie set in the decade I was born, which was the 1970s. The contenders were Almost Famous, Boogie Nights, and Casino. You voted, and the film you selected was Casino. Look at this place. It's made of money. What do you think about me moving out here? I just got to tell you, it's no joke out here. You got to keep a low profile. Right off the bat, they don't like guys like us. Oh, yeah! Settle down. I want a family. You got the wrong girl. You'll be set up for the rest of your life. You don't know me. What do you know me for three months? They had it all. They ran the show. And it was paradise while it lasted. Released on November 22nd, 1995, Casino tells the story of a bookie named Sam Rothstein, played by Oscar winner Robert De Niro. Sam is hired to run the Tangiers Casino on the Las Vegas Strip. Ace, as he is known by his friends, is eager to live an honest life in his new role, when his childhood friend Nicky Santoro shows up. Nicky, played by Oscar winner Joe Pesci, is hired by the Mafia to be Ace's unofficial protector. Ace's casino is a success right out of the gate, due in part to his allowance of the Mafia bosses to take a little of the profits off the top while making it seem like everything is legally on the up-and-up. Things take a turn when Nicky decides he too wants a shot at glory and begins a life of crime in Las Vegas that eventually brings too much attention on Ace's business, thereby jeopardizing his success at keeping his mafia ties on the down-low. Also complicating matters is Ace's wife Ginger, played by Sharon Stone, in her Oscar-nominated role. Ginger is a hustler, showgirl, and former prostitute with whom Ace has a daughter. Their relationship is thrown into disarray as Ginger can't seem to detach from her con artist's former boyfriend, Lester Diamond, played by Oscar nominee James Woods. With his wife spiraling out of control due to drugs and alcohol, and his best friend putting everything at risk, Ace's life is thrown into turmoil, and considering this is a Martin Scorsese film, we know that it's going to end in a very violent manner. Based on Nicholas Pileggi's book, Casino, Love and Honor in Las Vegas, Casino began as a screenwriting partnership between Pileggi and Scorsese. Scorsese shot the film mainly at night using the Riviera Casino as a set. With its depictions of several ultra-violent scenes, the film was first rated NC-17, forcing Scorsese to edit it down to secure an R rating. The film features a large cast including significant roles for actors like the late great Don Rickles and Alan King. Upon release, the film received mostly positive reviews, with many praising the familiar territory that Scorsese was known for. However, this also caused several critics to inevitably compare it negatively to his film Goodfellas, which was released just five years earlier. It opened in fifth place at the box office, earning $14.5 million, and eventually grossed $116 million. Sharon Stone received universal praise for her performance, earning a Golden Globe Award for Best Actress in a Drama, as well as earning the film its sole Oscar nomination. In recent years, time has been kind to Casino, as critics have revisited it, and upon re-evaluation, offer it much higher praise than when it was first released. And you too can judge for yourself, as you can watch it on Peacock. Next week's Be Kind Rewind topic is a film based around a sport. The contenders are Jerry Maguire, 
Field of Dreams, and The Cutting Edge. Come to my Instagram at Shovit to vote for which film I should focus on, and the post with the most likes will be next week's segment. So, that's it for this episode of Theater Shove It. Don't forget, part three of my summer miniseries, 50 Years, 50 Movies, is now available for download, and I'm currently working on part four. Thank you so much for joining me this week. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed making this episode for you. Support your local theaters by going to see some of the movies I reviewed this month, and while you're at it, share my podcast with your movie and TV-loving friends and family. Don't forget, you can drop me a line at seeitorshoveit at gmail.com and let me know of any ideas or suggestions. Follow me on Instagram and Letterboxd at seeitorshoveit and rate me wherever you get your podcasts. By the way, if you want to get a sneak peek at what I think of the films I see right after I watch them, check out my profile on Letterboxd. I post a small review the same day I watch the films. You can also see my list of the top and bottom films for the year so far. It's an interesting site. Check it out. Come back next week to hear my thoughts on all the new releases, which includes the box office battle we've all been waiting for, Barbieheimer, takes over theaters with Margot Robbie and Greta Gerwig's Barbie, and Killian Murphy and Christopher Nolan's Oppenheimer. Thanks again, and have a great week, everyone. This episode of Theater Shove It was recorded in Orlando, Florida, and is produced by Gregory G. Productions. Music by Mysterio Music. All rights reserved.